0: Adrian Goldberg, and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report, and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Italy's drift to the right with Giorgia Maloney, set to be the country's first female prime minister and also leader of its most right wing government since the days of Mussolini. Maloney's Brothers of Italy, which started as a neo fascist party, scored 26% of the vote and is likely to be a senior party in a new coalition we're going to hear in a moment from david broder david is the author of Mussolini's grandchildren fascism in contemporary italy before then though just a reminder that the byline times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the byline times that's our wonderful monthly newspaper edited by hardeep matharu which has exclusive content in the print edition that you cannot read online. The great thing about the Byline Times is there's no shadowy oligarch or millionaire backer telling us what to say. We can report without fear or favour because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So please subscribe, if you can, to the Byline Times. You get more details over at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Let's hear then from David Broder. David, welcome along to the Byline Times podcast. So firstly, before we discuss the importance, the significance of this election result, tell us a little bit about
1: Giorgia Maloney. Well, Giorgia Maloney has been a political activist since a very young age. She's from Rome, from Garbatella, which is a, a working class district. Her parents aren't from Rome. But she joined the Italian social movement in 1992. The Italian social movement, MSI, was a neo-fascist party founded by members of the defeated fascist regime in 1946. And it has a long and often violent history in post-war uh, decades uh, and was always quite a small party, the kind of party that would get 5 or 6% of the vote. But Maloney joined it at a time of great upheaval in Italian politics with the death of a lot of the old parties, the end of the Cold War. And she made her career in the MSI. She became a councillor in Rome, then she became a MP, and she became the youngest ever deputy speaker of the Chamber of Deputies when she was only 29 years old. So in fact, already as a young woman, she became youth minister in the last of Silvio Berlusconi's governments at a time when the post-fascist party was welcomed into a broad right-wing coalition. So already in the 1990s, former fascists were in government as a junior partner to Berlusconi. But what we've seen over the more recent decades is that the the most right-wing parts of that coalition, including former fascists, have become the dominant force. And this election result is really the the, uh, culmination of that process. When you mention the MSI then,
0: this party which grew from the ashes of Mussolini's fascism, is that the same as Brothers of Italy? Is that the same party?
1: Yes and no. In the 1990s, the MSI renamed itself Alianza Nazionale, National Alliance, and then it directly merged with Berlusconi's party. In those years, its leader, Gianfranco Fini made some efforts to distance itself from fascism or, let's say, to to merge some of the fascist influences with a more liberal democratic culture, a commitment to taking part in electoral politics, rejection of violence and authoritarianism. That created some conflict in the party at the time. For example, Alessandra Mussolini, the granddaughter of the dictator, quit the party in 2003 after Fini made a visit to Israel, where he strongly criticised the history of the fascist regime. And then Fini eventually took the party into a merger with Berlusconi's party. Fratelli d'Italia was created in 2012 by people who rejected that process and who reasserted the claim to the party tradition. So they adopted the MSI's logo, which is a tricolor flame, and Fratelli d'Italia's flag even now has the flame of the MSI in it. And in the early years of the party, particularly when Meloni sought to assert its ownership over the neo-fascist tradition over other small groups like Casa Pound or Fiamma Tricolore, uh, more extremist extra-parliamentary groups, she often lent into a very severe denunciation of those who had earlier dissolved the neo-fascist tradition, for instance, calling Fini a mascot of the Masons of high finance and so on. So, particularly in the early years, the party adopted a very conspiratorial register, but also kind of harked back to neo-fascism. But a lot had also changed, particularly because of the lessening, in general, of political violence in Italy.
0: So, Fratelli d'Italia, brothers of Italy, they wanted to reclaim, in a sense, then the the fascist
1: tradition from which the MSI, the original MSI, had grown. Yes, that's right. Giorgio Malani often cites as her political forefather, Giorgio Almirante. Almirante was the founding leader of the MSI and, and led it through most of its history, actually, until his death in 1988. Almirante had taken part in the regime. He had written for a journal called La Defesa della Razza, The Defense of the Race, in which he advocated explicitly biological racist ideas. Nonetheless, he stands in the Fratelli d'Italia tradition as someone who brought fascists into democracy. Where they had been relatively politically marginalized after 1945, they see him as someone who kept the flame alive. Of course, over the decades, the way that they organized changed and isn't just the same as historical fascism. For instance, a commitment to constitutional process, taking part in elections, generally over time rejected other terrorist groups who were within the orbit of the party, Although that was a very conflict-ridden process. And so today what we see in Fratelli d'Italia is a party which celebrates the unbroken tradition of the post-war MSI much more than it actually celebrates the Mussolini regime itself. That brings up a lot of contradictions, of course, because the very people they're celebrating did call themselves fascists, and many of them were uh, veterans of the regime. Uh, In fact, even at the time Meloni joined in 1992, still many of the main leaders were people who had directly participated in the Nazi collaborationist solo republic. Uh, So there is a
0: genuine historical link then to Mussolini with the party of the woman who is now going to be in all probability, the leader of Italy.
1: Yes, absolutely. And often we hear this kind of story, which is that, oh, well, the party's broken with the past, that no longer applies, and so on. But when you look specifically at what they're saying, it's actually very indulgent and partial criticism of fascism. For instance, Giorgia Milani, about a month ago, issued a video for international media where she sought to dismiss claims that her party is indeed steeped in fascism. But what was really interesting was the very uh, kind of pedantic phrasing she used in order to not condemn fascism in general. So a, a typical way of doing this, and which she repeated, is to condemn its 1938 racial laws, which involved the segregation of Jews and indeed other ethnic minorities from taking part in public life from children going to school, Jews having jobs in the civil service and so on. So the sort of rhetorical trick, if you will, is to say that that was wrong and that fascism's participation in the Holocaust is to be condemned, but not to condemn the fascist experience in general. And part of what this aims to do is actually to to separate a general judgment on fascism from the idea that basically Mussolini went astray when he was led along by Hitler. So even though, of course, there's much to be said about the record of of racism and ethnic violence of fascism right from its origins, this is a kind of way of saying, well, fascism wasn't so bad, lots of people joined in good faith, and indeed that the people who continued the neo-fascist tradition after the war are not to be condemned, but rather celebrated because they maintained the tradition of the right and they fought against communists who were even worse. So yeah, so this party has a much more distinctly fascist tradition than other far-right parties, for instance, the Front National in in France.
0: And you mentioned the Front National, of course. Marine Le Pen attempted to modify what many people regarded as a, a far-right stance in the recent presidential elections. It wasn't successful for her. She was defeated by Emmanuel Macron. But has Maloney adopted a similar stance as she tried to mainstream her appeal in some
1: way? I think yes, in part, but it's also a very contradictory process. In fact, I'd say that we can generally observe a distinction between Maloney's insistence that she won't disturb Italy's international position. For instance, making a the very strong emphasis on the fact that she supports Ukraine, not Russia, that she's committed to NATO, that she wants to sort of change the European Union rather than consider Euro exit. And you know, even only a few years ago, she had basically the opposite positions on these questions. But much more than Le Pen, she's kind of insisted on Italy's commitment to its Western partners and has a much stronger position against Putin and, for instance, against China, even than parties like the Lega uh, in Italy or Le Pen's in France.
0: Yeah, because in France, Le Pen didn't actually advocate exit, French exit from the European Union, but there were many people who believed that she would have steered France down that path, made it very difficult for France to stay within the European Union, essentially by breaking its rules, the rules that she disagreed with. There isn't that same sense then from Maloney. She's committed, as far as we can tell, to the EU.
1: I think, yes, in the sense that that's the way she's framing her agenda now. Of course, it's also true that, firstly, there's some difference between the two cases. Italy is much more vulnerable to tipping out of the European Union accidentally, has much higher public debt. Also, it's the discourse on the possibility of Italy exit has been strongly undermined by the recent pandemic. Firstly, the, the mere fact of the pandemic showing the way in which we was internationally connected, but also the post-pandemic recovery funds. So Meloni actually insisted that she will continue the disbursement of those funds as under the Mario Draghi government, but with some changes, uh, probably actually un- undermining in particular the uh, focus on the green transition. But I think that there's other ways in which, while... This kind of paints the idea of you know mainstreaming and moderation. There's lots of ways in which that isn't true. And in fact, if you look at her intervention at the CPAC conference with the US conservatives, she actually very explicitly says, I don't want to be part of your mainstream. We're not the right that is on a leash. You know, we know who we really are. So even alongside this kind of basically recognition of a, of something she can't actually change, which is that Italy is basically a quite secondary player in Euro-Atlantic institutions. At the same time, we have this very intense hostility directed against supposed kind of conspiracies of globalists, George Soros, the left, who are basically accused of a plot to destroy Italian society. So Maloney has very often resorted to the language of the so-called Great Replacement Theory, or as she sometimes puts it, the Plan for Ethnic Substitution, which basically presents the idea of a kind of shadowy plot to replace white Europeans with immigrants and Muslims. Recently, a very uh, evocative example of this was when she gave a rally with the Spanish far-right party Vox, which, by the way, is also a party which doesn't really want to leave the European Union, but also has these kind of conspiracy theories so you know speaking to that she said yes to our civilization no to the people who want to destroy it so she has this very combative and hostile approach to uh, domestic enemies and also um, minority groups for example damning the totalitarian power of lgbt lobbies and this kind of thing
0: so if you are a migrant in italy or a migrant from a minority background anyway you might be feeling pretty uncomfortable. And if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, you might be feeling very uncomfortable. You've got somebody now who is in all probability the next Prime Minister of Italy, who has voiced outright hostility towards your very existence.
1: One thing is that Miloni has still got policies which are extremely hostile to immigrants and proposed very outlandish and harsh means of repression, including the call for a naval blockade in the Mediterranean to stop migrant boats. She's previously actually even raised the idea kind of provocatively of bombing rescue boats. Of course, one might question whether this is actually going to play out in, in practice in terms of you know, actually blockading the entire Mediterranean coast of Italy seems very unlikely, but nonetheless, even a partial application of that policy could and in fact likely will, mean the deaths of hundreds and thousands of people. Even beyond the question of people trying to reach Italy by sea, I think that people in Italy who are from ethnic minorities, or indeed, in a different way, LGBT people, I think even beyond the actual policies pursued by the government, just the example that Milani sets and the fact that the top charges of the state are controlled by people who hold these ideas and views, will unleash a very hostile climate in Italian society broadly. Another example we could take is abortion. Milani says she doesn't want to get rid of the existing right to seek an abortion. Yet, already in the regions controlled by her party, we've seen that they actually act to make access harder, uh, including by imposing kind of unrealistic limits, for instance, a seven-week limit on abortion with a compulsory one-week cooling-off period, which would obviously make it very hard for uh, a lot of people to access that. In a way, it's of course true that, well, we're not going to see the imposition of a fascist regime, but then that's, of course, also a very low bar. I think what we can expect is a more general kind of norm erosion and the pursuit of sort of harsh identity politics and culture wars from the heights of government. And that will also have a very negative effect on a lot of people's lives.
0: And for people of minority backgrounds in Italy, can we expect any restrictions on their right to live in the country or their right to stay in the country?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so one of the key focuses of far-right agitation, and including by Milani, is that they're opposed to the idea that the children of migrants should have the right to citizenship, even if they're born in Italy. So there are indeed many hundreds of thousands of young people who are born in Italy but don't have Italian citizenship. In some cases, in local councils run by the far-right parties, we've seen them do things like denying free school meals to non-EU citizens even though, of course, the children in question are born in the country and have no choice but to live there, Uh, also with things like school buses. So there's that kind of way of of actually really harassing uh, even children who are from ethnic minority backgrounds. And another thing that Milani has proposed is that non-EU citizens who set up businesses in Italy uh, should have to pay massive sureties, like basically pay an advance payment to prove that they aren't going to do tax evasion. The sort of rhetoric around this is seemingly based on the premise that it is immigrants who are importing the culture of tax evasion into Italy. Of course, one of the main leaders of her government coalition is a convicted tax fraudster. And in general, it's actually true of Fratelli d'Italia's own elected officials that they have far higher propensity to criminality than it's true of politicians in general. So I think, yes, there are very definitely means by which this government will make people's lives harder, as indeed did the previous governments, including these parties. The difference this time is that Fratelli d'Italia is the bigger one.
0: And we've touched on this already, but LGBT people as well, then they're people who are going to be likely to be victims of an ongoing culture war.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the typical themes of Fratelli d'Italia's sort of narration of the way they talk about the the world we live in is the destruction of our roots and identity, included by speculators, by online social networks, by the International Republic of Money, as they call it, to create a sort of formless mass of atomized citizens who have no loyalty or roots. And as against this, they pose, you know, the natural, traditional, of course, heterosexual family. That includes a very harsh idea of LGBT people who are basically portrayed as unnatural and rootless and not really belonging, and indeed being like weapons of lobbies which are trying to deracinate the population. And so these ideas, although not necessarily put in the language of historical fascism do very much belong to the idea of the minorities and actually particularly Jews who drive the destruction of community to create the totally liquid society who are just agents of capital. So yeah, I mean, during the campaign, there was an incident where a um, someone with a sort of LGBT flag sort of got up on the stage during one of Milani's rallies. And she kind of paternalistically said like, well, we'll have to disagree. And it was kind of staged as a kind of moment of her being sort of consensual and accepting, but then, you know, I mean, it doesn't take...
0: <laughs> but accepting clearly very reluctantly.
1: <laughs> yeah, of course, the agreement to disagree is that she agrees that basically the <laughs> you know, they should agree that she gets to have her opinion, which is that, you know, their existence basically counts less. So, yeah, I mean, like Italy doesn't have gay marriage. It has civil unions. And I think it's unlikely to to change under this government, of course. I think the other thing is that I feel that this moment will have a very negative and broad social effect. Of course, it's actually true that a majority of Italians, judging by polls, a majority of Italians do support same-sex marriage and adoption. But basically, for the victory for this party, Will be a uh, a boost to uh, all manner of uh, homophobes and reactionaries, including in their sort of everyday uh, interactions.
0: There have been a few phrases of theirs that you have quoted, David. And as someone of Jewish heritage, perhaps I'm over sensitive to these phrases. But when you've talked about international capital, you've talked about uh, people being ho- in hock to the Masons and so on. Is there an underlying dog whistle anti-Semitism? about all this?
1: Yes. (laughs) The the answer is yes. And we see this in the prominence of George Soros uh, in the party's propaganda. Of course, we can establish a certain connection with the fact that the party has such good relations with Viktor Orban in Hungary, who prominently demonizes Soros in his propaganda. I mean, I'll, I'll give a couple of examples, one of which is the claim that George Soros is the figure behind ethnic substitution. And uh, Milani, in one of her um, posts about this, referred to him as a usurer. I mean, that word is obviously particularly strongly connotated. Often instead we have like speculators, this kind of thing. Another telling example was on the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. Uh, Milani sort of issued a, a, a film sort of celebrating Italy's defense and then invasion of neighboring territory at the end of World War One. And one of the common World War I slogans in Italy is uh, "The foreigner shall not pass." And so she posted a hundred years ago, like today, "The foreigner shall not pass." Back then, it was like the armies of Austro-Hungary. Today, it is the speculator Soros, allied to the left, who is sending you know immigrants to invade us, and we will defend ourselves. <laughs> I have to say. I don't feel that I, in general, have been someone who's necessarily always called every new right-wing phenomenon, you know, the return of fascism. But I think you'd have to be very blind to not see that there is indeed a connection between their roots in fascism and their embrace of these ideas. And even though it's not just the same old Mussolinian ideas, they're also drawing on things like Great Replacement Theory, Reverse Colonialism. And these kind of international, sort of far right memes, often, it's, particularly in Italian media, it's kind of like, oh, there's a guy with a there's a guy with a flag from the Solo Republic that fought with Nazi Germany, and he's like, a, and then they often say he's a nostalgist. Battles over the past really do matter, and they're important to political identity. But this isn't just about the past; it's also about the way you interpret the crises we have in front of us now, and whether you do indeed think that. The way we deal with them that has to like also include people who are non-nationals and minorities or whether you say actually they're the people who are causing uh, the problem and so in that sense i think it, it actually is a, a quite worrying uh, moment and
0: of course uh, you've mentioned that she's opposed to putin that she supports ukraine but in her culture wars she echoes putin in her nationalism she echoes Putin. More broadly, we've seen a a movement towards the centre-right, as they would call it, as the far-right, as I think you correctly call it, not just in Italy, but in other countries as well. Sweden, we've seen the rise of AFD in Germany. Marine Le Pen's relative success in France, albeit her failure to win the presidential election. So these are Troubling times, I think, for Europe as a whole. Tell me a little bit, though, David, about the partners in her likely
1: coalition. Are they further to the right? Are they less to the right? I think one of the uh, common optical illusions of Italian politics is that as things move further and further right, people who were previously thought to be extreme and beyond the pale in self, themselves become seen as sort of protectors of Of moderation and normality, and partly because they've been we've sort of seen them already. So, you know, Silvio Berlusconi is a a good case in point, in the sense that he's quite widely portrayed in as a kind of more pro-European, more moderate figure, and yet, of course, the whole reason why these parties are in government, including the far right ones, is because he brought them in to his first government in the 1990s, where they hadn't been there before. So in a way, it's kind of like he thought he could control them, and then they they have escaped his uh, leadership. Broadly, I think we can say that Forza Italia, Berlusconi's party, is more likely to enter arrangements with kind of centrist and center-left forces, and probably the one party that would be most likely to leave the coalition uh, once it begins to fail and also is a party which doesn't have the same roots in neo-fascism. Although, of course, Berlusconi himself has very often made very indulgent comments about the fascist regime and indeed uh, racist ones. I think that broadly we can say that the Lega is seen as the the most disruptive force.
0: The party which polled, I think, 9% of the votes, this is likely to be the other main party in the coalition.
1: Yes, that's right. So that's the party led by Matteo Salvini. Historically, it was a northern regionalist party in the wealthier northern regions of Italy, but now he's made it an all-Italian nationalist party. And maybe two or three years ago, including when he was interior minister, it looked like he was the big winner in the right-wing bloc. He was polling over 30%. And now he's been reduced a lot. So I think the problem they have there is that Salvini will need to differentiate himself And we can already see some of the ways in which he might do that, one of which is that broadly, the Lega is much less supportive of the sanctions on Russia. That said, I think we should also look within Fratelli d'Italia for its contradictions. After all, this is a party which only had 4% of the vote in the last general election, which now has more than a quarter of MPs, and whose voters are actually much more hostile to the sanctions against Russia than any other parties. So I think that although thus far and like you know before it reaches government, it's kind of a bit easy for Milani, you know, who's the only opposition leader in the previous at the end of the previous parliament, it's kind of easy for her to cast a very broad appeal and to sort of rein in some of her own members. I'm not sure how that's really going to play out in practice. In fact, I would very much expect that given the likely mediocrity of a Milani government faced with the energy crisis uh, is much more likely to play up its kind of identitarian and cultural themes in order to try and hold on to its base so yeah so i think within the coalition there's three different parties but also even within fratelli d'italia itself uh, it's quite a, a contradictory party
0: Been really fascinating to hear from you, David. Thank you. That's an amazing insight into uh, uh, Giorgia Milani and her party and the current state of Italian politics. David is the author of Mussolini's grandchildren, Fascism, in contemporary italy it really has been an eye-opener and i hope we've marked your card about the rather worrying state of modern italian politics david thank you i'm adrian goldberg this has been the byline times podcast funded by subscriptions to the byline times you get details of how to subscribe over our website bylinetimes.com that's a bylinetimes.com and subscriptions start from as little as three pounds a month so thanks for listening we'll see you again very soon cheers now bye bye